was once an astronaut on the International Space Station, Persephone, which served as an orbiting research laboratory and a central hub for space shuttles and Russian Soyuz capsules. Though the space station could accommodate up to nine visiting guests, I was the sole permanent resident and was often alone for months at a time. Solitary confinement in outer space is a special kind of loneliness, a loneliness truer and more profound than any isolation on Earth. I remember one seven-month period where my only companions were the Wisconsin fast plants I was growing for scientific study. Midway into my experiments, a supply ship collided with the space station, causing a three-day power blackout, and the plants withered and died. I became so depressed, I lay in my habitation module for six weeks, eating nothing but freeze-dried ice cream. On the rare occasion that visitors stopped by, I worked around the clock to ensure a comfortable stay. I polished the interior paneling, scrubbed the toilet, and decorated the habitation module with colorful streamers and confetti, which floated effortlessly about the room like glitter in a snow globe. When visited by cosmonauts, I brushed up on my Russian, aided by a series of educational cassette tapes. I made sure the sleep chambers were clean and outfitted with fresh sheets, and placed a hovering mint above every pillow. But my finest contribution, the pinnacle of zero-gravity hospitality, was my elaborate cooking. I once hosted a dinner party for the crew of the Space Shuttle Columbia, who were taking a break from repairing the Hubble telescope. I prepared a five-course meal consisting of freeze-dried barbecued bacon-wrapped shrimp with coarse basil stuffing, freeze-dried pit-fired Caribbean pork tenderloin, and grilled plantains with passion fruit butter, freeze-dried layered cornbread vegetable salsa, freeze-dried barbecue chili with smoked sausage, and a dessert of freeze-dried lemon icebox pie with heaven-high meringue. Corbel champagne was also served. After gorging ourselves on the gourmet food and finishing off the last of the champagne, we'd get some games from the supply closet and play for hours. Battleship was the most popular because the tiny pieces stuck into the board and didn't float away like they did with chutes and ladders or Candyland. We tried playing spin the bottle once, but the bottle never stopped spinning due to the absence of friction. We were pretty drunk, so we made out with each other indiscriminately. Eventually, most of the partygoers would crawl into their sleep chambers, or if they were particularly intoxicated, one of the research laboratories, and those of us still awake would don our Kevlar spacesuits and go outside to watch the Earth. We were attached to the spacecraft with long umbilical cords that supplied us with pure oxygen, and indeed, floating in the vacuum of space is probably the closest sensation there is to being in the womb. In college, I often spent the dying hours of massive keggers perched atop the roof of my frat house, gazing at the stars and tracing the constellations with my fingers. As magical as those moments were, they don't hold a candle to stargazing in outer space. It's not that you're closer to the stars since they're still billions and billions of light years away, it's just that the solitude that comes from the absence of matter is so overwhelming it makes spacewalking an almost religious experience. For a moment, you're breathless, but when you come up for air, you see the Earth, the most beautiful planet in the sky, 
and it's like you're born again, like a baptism in interstellar photons. Eventually, all of us get high from the atmosphere of pure oxygen inside our polycarbonate helmets, and we share the beauty of the void, an intimate brotherhood hundreds of miles away from humanity. Back on Earth, they use pure oxygen to exfoliate skin and cure hangovers. Another miracle cheapened by commerce. Once every few years, my humble space station is visited by the beautiful cosmonaut Svetlana. Svetlana and I share a checkered past. One time I returned from a moonwalk with an engagement ring fashioned out of lunar rocks, only to discover her in a menage a trois with the pilot and the payload specialist. Another time, we got into a violent argument and she admitted sending me on spacewalks during peak solar flare activity in the hopes of rendering me sterile. Despite these irrational outbursts, we're drawn to each other by some magnetic force, perhaps the same force keeping us in orbit around the Earth. Or maybe it's just our shared loneliness. In either case, when our passions take hold, it's like a manual override on self-respect and logic. Sex on a space shuttle is a complicated maneuver, as there's a 24-hour live video feed streamed to NASA, so we have to get creative. Sometimes we block the cameras with packets of freeze-dried ice cream, but in the heat of the moment, we often get carried away and knock them loose, and as they float past our intertwined bodies, the ground crew at NASA gets a more accurate representation of our physiological research. I'm not sure why, but there's something about the absence of gravity that leads to greater heights of pleasure than I've ever experienced on Earth. During a brief sabbatical in Corpus Christi, Svetlana and I slept together in a cheap motel, but the results were nothing like our cosmic liaisons. After we were done, she rolled on her side and stared silently at the tacky pineapple wallpaper. I reached to caress her back but she shuddered and said, I wasn't meant to be loved on Earth. Sometimes, I still think of asking her to marry me, finally showing her the engagement ring I've been keeping in my flight suit pocket, but I know it will never work. We can only be together in outer space, and sooner or later, we'll both have to come down, or our muscles will deteriorate to the point of uselessness, 
and our bones will waste away. Is it an accident that our euphoria is caused by the same force that is slowly destroying us? Or is it a warning against a passion too powerful for our bodies and souls to take? Personally, I blame it on the pure oxygen. It must be the oxygen. Voyager probe was scheduled for launch in 1977, its course set for the stars, beyond the outer reaches of our solar system. Scientists decided it was a good idea to leave a calling card for any extraterrestrial life the self-propelled ambassador might encounter. Whereas the original Pioneer probes merely contained an aluminum plaque with a picture of a naked, waving man and a casually posed nude woman. The Voyager spacecraft were equipped with a working copper phonograph, written instructions describing how to play it with the enclosed cartridge and needle. Any aliens who discovered the record player would likely experience the same frustration as an American consulting an appliance manual written in Japanese characters. Besides containing spoken greetings in 55 languages, the Voyager record featured 90 minutes of music handpicked by Dr. Carl Sagan and his closest associates, the ultimate cosmic mixtape. Johann Sebastian Bach was the big winner, scoring three selections compared to Beethoven's two and Mozart's one. Sagan must have thought that extraterrestrial life would be musically sophisticated since he included Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, a piece Parisian audiences found so abrasive they rioted in the theater. Besides classical music, the 12-inch gold-plated disc contained ethnic folk music from Peru, Zaire, Bulgaria, and other disparate regions. Rounding out the compilation were songs by Louis Armstrong and his Hot 7, Blind Willie Johnson, and Johnny B. Good by Chuck Berry, the collection's one bona fide rock and roll hit. Sagan must have thought that the aliens weren't quite ready for Cream and the Jefferson Airplane. When I'm bored, I occasionally dream up my own mixtape for the music lovers beyond our solar system, concentrating mostly on the genre of mid-90s alternative rock. On my gold record, Nirvana enjoys the exalted status of J.S. Bach, earning three spots, namely Smells Like Teen Spirit, Heart-Shaped Box, and the unplugged version of All Apologies. My Beethoven is Soundgarden, with Black Hole Sun and fell on black days. I'm not sure how well these songs hold up to Beethoven's fifth and Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 2, but for major label garage rock, they're more than adequate. Besides including popular radio hits from future iconoclasts like Beck and The Flaming Lips, I make sure to represent the one-hit wonder, 
a cornerstone of popular music, with such groups as Primitive Radio Gods, The Verve Pipe, and The Crash Test Dummies. For the icing on the cake, I include a picture of two earthlings, a man and a woman, but instead of being naked, they're dressed in flannel and tattered jeans. Once, while thinking of the perfect Charles Mingus tune for the jazz edition of my interplanetary sampler, I was paid a surprise visit by the first private spacecraft. The crew were reject astronauts, and the passengers were all greenhorns, clearly not prepared for the rigors of space travel. One, a wealthy heiress to a cheesecake conglomerate, vomited within minutes of boarding the station. I prepared my guests an elaborate meal of freeze-dried beluga and sea bass, and while we dined, the cheesecake heiress brought up the topic of commercial development in outer space. I can see it now, she said, gazing out the porthole. Rows and rows of orbiting luxury hotels and condominiums, solar radiation tanning salons, and zero-gravity discotheques, sport utility spacecraft dealerships, and five-star restaurants, serving the finest in freeze-dried cuisine. The other amateur space explorers shared her enthusiasm, drawing up wish lists of space Disney theme parks and 18-hole lunar golf courses. A young oil tycoon, the son of a U.S. senator, said the American government was already looking into purchasing international space for development. I interrupted the wild-eyed dreams of the would-be speculators with a stern lecture on the sanctity of outer space. Space isn't a commodity, I said. It's not something you can bottle and sell. It's the last sacred, unblemished expanse we have left. Outside these walls, there's no matter, no road construction, no cell phone conversations, no TV infomercials. It's a vacuum, a virgin wilderness, sacrosanct, and pure. I floated to the porthole and directed my guest's attention to the luminescent blue billiard ball that was Earth. Almost 50 years ago, the Russian dog Leica was the first animal to enter outer space, I said. If she had been able to look out of her pressurized cabin, she would have gazed upon the Earth in all its unadulterated glory. Now, if you look closely, you'll see the view of your home planet is speckled with tiny imperfections, like dirt on a camera lens. These are satellites, orbiting in a geosynchronous ring around the Earth, downlinking digital radio and the Playboy channel to Earth stations and satellite dishes across the globe. Is this really what you want? A sprawl of mansions and condos so dense that it blots out the Earth, turning the vacuum of space into a congested traffic jam? Have you no respect for the natural beauty of your surroundings? After my tirade, my face was visibly red and wads of spittle floated from my lips throughout the cabin. The primary financier of the private space voyage, a savings and loan mogul, took me to task for my eco-friendly rhetoric. This isn't a tropical rainforest, he argued. There's no fragile ecosystem, no endangered species, no undiscovered plants with medicinal properties. This is a valuable untapped resource, the solution to our planet's crisis of overpopulation and desertification. Who are you to question humanity's manifest destiny? My pupils dilated, and I drew within inches of the billionaire playboy's nose, 
spitting venom. Who am I? I'll tell you who I am. As a boy, I covered my walls with posters of John Glenn and Buzz Aldrin. I rigged my light switch to play Neil Armstrong's giant leap for mankind speech. When all the other boys were playing baseball in the sandlot and playing doctor with the neighborhood girls, I was learning the constellations by heart and memorizing the names of the moons of Jupiter. To gain acceptance to the space program, I ran 15 miles a day and swam the entire length of the freshwater lake by my house. NASA doctors drew my blood, administered barium enemas, stuck a sigmoidal probe called the steel eel into my lower bowels, strapped me into chairs that shook me like a rag doll, barraged me with flashing strobe lights, and stuck me into centrifuge that approached 20 Gs before I blacked out. I spent the entirety of my first mission with electrodes hooked to my chest and a rectal thermometer shoved inside of me. And you know what? I didn't care. Because at that moment, when the countdown reached zero and the space shuttle slowly lifted off the ground, I considered myself the luckiest man on Earth. You bought your ticket into space. I earned mine. So that's who I am. I'm a dreamer. A patriot. An American hero. As far as I'm concerned, you're all a bunch of pirates, and I hope your spaceship crashes right into the sun. I stormed off to my quarters and booked the next flight home to Earth, vowing never to return again. back home, the world had changed dramatically. The last time I lived on Earth, the World Trade Center was still intact, as was America's international reputation. My spacecraft landed in the Atlantic Ocean near France, and when a patrolling cruiser towed me to the docks, I was jeered by the French sailors and stevedores because of the American flag stitched on my spacesuit. None of the cab drivers would give me a lift to the hotel, so I had to walk. My leg muscles had withered from years of habitation in zero gravity, making my snail-paced journey painful and arduous. Upon my return to the United States, I immediately began lobbying against interstellar sprawl, urging lawmakers to pass legislation ensuring the conservation of outer space. I appeared before a Senate subcommittee and was scolded by virtually every legislator. Look around you, said a senator from New Jersey. The cities are overcrowded, the highways are clogged with wall-to-wall traffic, and the farmlands are being eaten alive by suburban development. Now, you're going to tell me that an infinite tract of available space is off-limits? I leaned into the microphone and stared him down. I totally agree with you that the future of our race is eminently imperiled by urban congestion and land waste, I said. We've managed to mess up the Earth pretty darn well. Don't you think we should quit while we're ahead? 
my microphone was turned off and I was laughed out of the chambers. Unsure of what to do next, I hitched a ride to Houston, Texas to see if I could get an administrative job with NASA. Unfortunately, because of my unpopular political activism, I was blacklisted by the department head, condescendingly informed that there were no positions available for star-hugging radicals, and not even the Johnson Space Center gift shop would hire me. I booked a room in a rundown Motel 6 and paged through the classified ads looking for a job. After John Glenn made his historic Project Mercury flight and unsuccessfully ran for the U.S. Senate, he was hired by R.C. Cola as a vice president for corporate development. Back then, in the early 60s, astronauts were cultural icons, the superheroes of the Cold War, and every company and advertiser wanted a piece of the greatness. When John Glenn's capsule experienced technical problems with the heat shield on re-entry and his radio blacked out, the entire nation held its breath. Thousands of commuters in New York's Grand Central Station frozen in suspense, the heart-stopping cosmic drama playing out on a large-screen TV in the concourse. Normally restrained news anchor Walter Cronkite shouted, Go baby go at the struggling spacecraft. When Glenn successfully touched down, the country erupted in applause, celebrating their symbolic victory against the scientific juggernaut of the Soviet Union. Now, 40 years later, couldn't even translate my astronaut career into a job selling cars at a local Ford dealership. When people think of spaceships, they think of the Challenger exploding, explained the owner of the dealership. I can't have that negative thinking at Clydero Ford. People expect my cars to be built Ford tough, not ticking time bombs like your buddy Space Shuttle. I hit him in the jaw and was arrested by two Texas Rangers for disorderly conduct. I spent the night in jail, but at least I got blood all over his brand new pinstripe suit. It was made of rayon, a space-age material. Svetlana bailed me out of jail and drove me to her dingy apartment in a Houston housing project. I helped myself to some vodka from the kitchen, and when I returned to the parlor, Svetlana was tying her arm with a tourniquet, preparing to inject herself with cheap, low-grade heroin. Disgusted, I told her I wasn't going to be a party to this depravity and headed for the door. How do you deal with it, she sneered, preparing the heroin in a tablespoon. Deal with what, I asked. With being down here, instead of up there, she said. I grabbed the vodka and thundered out the door, 
taking long swigs as I strode through the projects. Neighboring the slums was a bustling commercial district, and as I dodged the onslaught of traffic, I noticed a billboard advertising timeshares and space condos. Space is the place, said the ad, featuring a gorgeous bikini-clad model sharing a cocktail with an astronaut in full uniform. I felt a crushing sensation in my chest, like being smashed against the wall of the centrifuge and blacked out, falling in a broken heap on the sidewalk. A passing policeman stopped by and noticed the bottle of Smirnoff lying beside me. He'll sleep it off, he said to a worried bystander, and strolled by to issue a parking ticket. When I came to, three large heads were looming above me, expressions of deep concern etched on their faces. I recognized them immediately. They were my childhood heroes, John Glenn, Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin. You had yourself a nice fall there, son, said Neil Armstrong, offering his hand. I'm a whiskey man myself, said Buzz Aldrin. The astronauts helped me to my feet, and we sat down on a hard, plastic bench at a bus stop. Would you like an RC Cola, said John Glenn, offering a can. I accepted his gift, even though I despised carbonated beverages. When John Glenn hands you an RC Cola, you take it. So, what's this I hear about your rabble-rousing against space tourism, asked Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon. It would be just like the Jetsons, added Neil Armstrong. I couldn't believe it. Even with the weight of popular sentiment against me, I thought that at least these men would understand. These were the pioneers of American space travel, the founding fathers of a new era in science and technology. If they didn't share my belief in the sanctity of outer space, who did? I turned to John Glenn and pleaded my case. Look, I said, when you were living in the East Coast in the 50s, the main streets of America were full of mom-and-pop stores, locally owned diners and soda fountains. The owners knew their customers, and there was a real sense of family, of investment in the community. And now, our cities are clogged with Walmarts and Burger Kings, impersonal, uncaring monoliths that suck in teenage workers and spit them out a month later, a minimum-wage conveyor belt of high school dropouts and illegal immigrants valued solely for their ability to operate a fry cooker or a cash register. Is that what you want to happen to outer space? A corporate leper colony carved up in boardroom meetings and international conference calls? John Glenn laughed and took a sip of RC Cola. Whoa there, son, he said to me. Where's all this misdirected rhetoric coming from? All we're talking about is bringing space to the people. Our goal is to one day make space travel affordable to everybody. Don't you think that everyone should experience the magic of a rocket launch, the thrill of an orbit around the Earth? I thought it over, but I wasn't buying it. Space travel will always cost millions of dollars, I said. There's no way some family in the projects is going to be able to hop aboard a space shuttle and go on a nice vacation to the moon. With this economy, they can't even afford a vacation to the Alamo or Six Flags over Texas. Neil Armstrong pulled out a piece of beef jerky and re-entered the conversation. They said we never put a man on the moon, he said, and look how that turned out. Buzz Aldrin put his hand on my shoulder 
and began delivering some words of wisdom. Think of the hypothetical fish who has no concept of water, because, for him, water is the totality. But, if he crawls onto land, he suddenly becomes aware of the ocean. Returning to the sea, he knows his place for the first time. In the long run, the whole politics of society has been more profoundly changed by a new sense of human potential than by any amount of obsessive self-maintenance. Cultures cannot remain standing. They evolve or decline. They explore or they expire. They take risks. At the very least, we all have the opportunity to become terrestrial astronauts. My wish for you is that you never ever cease to dream, to sail the ship of imagination. He finished off his can of RC Cola and threw it in the dumpster, content with his sage advice. I recognized the speech immediately and called him on it. That's the commencement speech you gave at the New England Institute of Technology, I said, and I don't think it applies to the situation at all. Buzz helped himself to another RC Cola and popped the top. Well, we better get going, he said. We've got a canasta date with Chuck Yeager, and he doesn't like to be kept waiting. The bus arrived, and the three elderly astronauts climbed aboard, patting me on the back before they left, leaving me alone to contemplate my run-in with the idols of my youth. Were they right? Was pragmatism favorable to idealism? Hadn't they been idealists once, when traveling beyond Earth's atmosphere was only a fantasy? Was the American dream really over? From 150 miles above, the Earth seems so serene, so peaceful, and yet, it's also fragile. A glass Christmas ornament that shatters into a thousand pieces if dropped from its tree branch. Back on the surface, the planet's vulnerability is only magnified, with its smog-infested air, trash-strewn highways, and toxic brown rivers. I miss how the Earth looks from outer space, how singular its beauty is in the vastness of the ether. I miss Svetlana's lap dances in the control room, even if it was only because she enjoyed performing for the cameras. And most of all, I miss the space station, Persephone, my dear Persephone, my loyal friend, my rock, my home away from home. The sun sets and the moon rises over Houston, a waning moon, a tiny sliver of light, that tomorrow will be nothing but an absent memory.